you were an energetic, gifted, sport-loving teenager with the world at your feet, who had a life-changing accident that crushed your spinal cord, left you paralysed and needing to use a wheelchair for the rest of your life, how would you cope? Not only that, how would you fashion a thriving career, a relentlessly positive mindset and a passion for helping other people by championing the cause of disability? That is the story of my guest, Henry Fraser. My accent's given me so much more than I ever dreamed of in my life. And it's given me a confidence that I never had from accident. And because of that, you know, I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for those amazing moments that Max has given me. I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and this is Turning the Tables, a podcast dedicated to the candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Each episode, my guests share their insight about how to turn adversity into advantage. Henry's story is truly one of turning around adversity, of humbling grit, determination and wisdom in the face of, quite frankly, monumental challenges. Most of all, Henry shows the power of human spirit, of acceptance and positive belief. Despite the challenges Henry faces on a day-to-day -day basis, he has become a celebrated and accomplished mouth artist, a motivational speaker and a Sunday Times best-selling author. His first book, The Little Big Things, was published to widespread acclaim and contained a foreword by the none other than J.K. Rowling. His latest book, The Power in You, How to Accept the Past, Live in the Present and Shape a Positive Future, shares how 11 years on Henry is dealing with the reality of his new life. We started our conversation with me telling Henry how when I came up with the idea of this podcast, he was top of my guest wish list. First thing to say is welcome to Turning the Tables, Henry. It's an absolute privilege to have you on the show. I will reveal something to you is that when I first started this podcast, I was doing it as part of a course and we were asked who would be your top guests? And you were number one on my guest list. You said it's all your guests, don't you, Simon? <laughs> I don't, actually. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. You, you, you can check back on all my other podcasts. I haven't said it before. <laughs> no, thank you. No, seriously. I think you epitomised everything that I felt about, you know, the importance of the podcast. It was about saying that adversity affects all of us, some obviously much more than others, but however much it does, you've, you've got to come through it and come out the other side and try and live a good life. And I think you've epitomised that amazingly. So that was why you were number one. And it does mean a lot as well. Um, I appreciate it. Well, nothing in comparison with you. So obviously, since your accident, and we will obviously talk a little bit about that, but I, I suspect most people now 
know that story, but there may be a few listeners who who don't, so we'll we'll cover that. But now you're a, you're a mouth artist, a motivational speaker, and you're an author, and you published your second book, The Power in You, which follows up on your first book, The Little Big Things. Yes, and you were discovered by J.K. Rowling, who described you as a most remarkable young man. But I guess even that doesn't begin to tell the story of of how all this began for you. You want to tell the listeners what what actually happened to you? So yeah, it was uh, eleven years ago this summer um, when I was on holiday with a group of mates in Portugal. End of our AS exams, relax, enjoy the sun. Enjoyed the sea, enjoyed kind of nights out, you know, away from the parents. Um, and it was a great time. We're, and then one day we just went around on the beach as we had done the previous days, chucking rope ball around, getting hot. So we decided to run into the water, go cool off. I'll follow a couple of friends in. They go kind of one way, I go to the side a bit more, but kind of a bit deeper, a bit further in. And so I run into a good depth into the water where I thought, it would see we continue to kind of get deeper as you so where I've dived in I've just kind of gone head first put my head on the sea um sea bay on the sandbank and yeah from that moment on um I was just floating in the water completely unable to move um so I was just floating in the water just kind of obviously I'm completely worried and scared for my life um and I was just staring down at the sea bears crystal clear water, my arms just dangling in front of me. I managed to turn my head ever so slightly to one side, and I'm getting half my mouth out of the water. And luckily a friend was close by, asked if I was okay, just managed to barely get the word no out. And another friend came over and they dragged me out of the water. And then, yeah, from that moment, kind of, obviously everything, everything changed for me in my life. I went from being a very kind of physical, fit and healthy 17-year-old boy Life revolved around sport and being outside, and kind of, I guess, my life was kind of um, uh, defined by my physicality. I think so. Then, at that point, I didn't know the kind of the full consequence of what happened. It was obviously in a moment, but from that moment, when I was dragged onto the beach. I was taken to hospital in Lisbon, where I was for three weeks. I'd turned out I dislocated the fourth vertebrae in my neck. So where that had dislocated, it dragged the spinal column with it and severely crushed it between, obviously, the bones below. The way we just we described to us as, imagine like a stack of polos and you just grab one and slowly slide it out. But down to the middle of that, there's thousands and millions and millions of um, nerves and stuff. So obviously, they were all gone, they were all crushed. Um, we had three weeks of Portugal, two major operations to realign my neck. First one went wrong, second one worked. I was, um, had all kind of, I had pneumonia, MRSA, septicemia. I'd pay, had to have a pacemaker fitted because I kept having heart problems, all these things. And then after that, when those teams I was fit and healthy enough to leave, I was able to fly back to England. Obviously, I wasn't, I wasn't healthy at all at that point. So obviously I had to get a special plane back to hospital in England where I was at St. Mandeville. ITU for another two weeks and then six months of kind of recovery, I guess. And then, yeah, that was it's kind of six months and seems like a long time, but now looking back at the scheme of things, it really wasn't. It's just part of kind of what needed to be done. 
just part of the whole process, really. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, for for the listeners, how do you describe your condition as you are now? So I'm technically a what they call a C3, C4 complete spinal injury. So where the cord's been crushed is that basically between the third and fourth vertebrae is where it's been severely crushed. Um, and complete means that that's it. Kind of there's well, there's no kind of physical recovery from that. That's um, so some people might be a C3, C4 incomplete where there are nerves intact and eventually they might be able to walk even and arm movement. But yeah, so I mean, physically, I've changed a lot since those early days. There has been some recovery, but that's just through kind of my stubbornness. I think more than anything. Yeah, you, you've certainly got a huge amount of resilience and grit. I suppose it's all all the more harsh because, as you described yourself as a as a young man, you were very fit. You were very much focused on physical activity, obviously rugby and all those things. So. In a way, it was even harsher. It's not like you were necessarily, for example, an academic. Not that it would make it any easier, but obviously it's yeah. particularly harsh. Yeah, and it was, yeah, at the start, kind of having to kind of think differently about kind of what I was able to do. And in a way, it did help me to think differently and focus on different things. Obviously, I'm, there's no point in me focusing on that side of it. But then as I was going through recovery and kind of rehab through the hospital, I then started to realise, oh, actually, I can, I can kind of use that, uh, kind of the things that used to motivate me when I was in the gym, and I was pushing myself physically as hard as I could, that I could now bring that actually to the rehab and stuff I was doing in the hospital. It kind of gave me that focus and that that drive. That um, I mean, in the gym, I was I was a strong guy and stronger than most of the most of the guys at school. So I wanted to kind of, I guess, prove that in a way. In the hospital, whether it's getting off the ventilator as fast as I could and beating any time they've been done said before, and kind of showing them that physically I can do more than they said I could, than the books say that I could do. And I did prove that at the time. And that was a big, I guess that was a big part of the, the journey for me, a big part of, kind of that acceptance of the situation that I still was able to find something to push myself and do more and kind of get my mindset into that, that that way of thinking. I mean, you could be forgiven for being self-pitying and, and resentful of what's happened to you, but you've managed to deal with it in such a positive and, 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 and graceful way. What's been behind that? Uh, thank you as well. That's, um, yeah, I mean, for me, one thing I've come to realise over everything and one of the things I go through the book about, actually the chapter about acceptance, is about kind of the journey of acceptance. About it's not something that just happens straight away. Looking back, I can see all kind of the different stages that's led me to to this point. And I'd say it took me a full, I don't know, 13, 14 months, I guess, before I'd really kind of hit full of, that level of full acceptance. I think um, the big turning point for me was when I was in hospital when I had that really bad day where I was put into a wheelchair for the first time and I saw my reflection and I was in this big wheelchair with armrests, a headrest, still a tracheotomy in my throat to help me breathe and I saw myself first time in two months 
and I was just so thin. I'd lost four stone. I was just kind of wasn't the man I was before, and that really that hit me big time. And went back to my room and asked my mum to pull the curtain on my bed. And I just lost it, completely broke. Yeah. My mum was hugging me. I just wanted to be able to hug my mum, and I couldn't even do that. And I was just just got worse and worse. And that day was it was horrible. Yeah. And I'd be surprised if I have a day tough that in my life. Is when my brothers came to see me, I was crying. Yeah. My dad came to see me, and I was crying, and all these <laughs> all these things. Yeah. It was just a really really rough day, and um. It was that night that you know, I was lying in bed and I thought to myself that you know there's no point in me being sad or angry, I may as well just go on with it. And it was generally that night, that kind of, hate to say it, almost epiphany moment. But I think I just, that day felt everything I needed to feel. I guess a lot of stuff that I'd held back over the previous, I don't know, four, four weeks or so, it wasn't at this I mean, the first five weeks were extremely emotional. Obviously, when my parents came to see me in Portugal, when my brothers first came to see me when I came back to England, every time my friends came to see me, my family came to see me the first time, there was a lot of crying, there was a lot of tears. But that was good because that was part of our healing together. That was part of that's a, We were showing our emotions, which I guess we had done before as brothers. Um, yeah. And then, but that night where I was lying in bed, I just released it all. That was it for me. That was when I was like, okay, now I'm going to start looking at things differently, start kind of, rather than the hospital always telling me about things that I can't do going forward or the things I won't be able to do, I want to start realizing what I can do and just kind of push the negative bits one say. It's not denying them. It's not. It's just going, well, okay, those are the negative things going forward, but what are the positive things I can do? What are the things I am still able to do in my life. So that was what I was focusing on through it. And yeah. So that was a big part of acceptance for me. That kind of, I guess that was got me halfway there. Um, then when I came home, it was about obviously accepting the new life out in the real world. Um, the new situation where I'm out of the safety and the comfort of the hospital that had been my home for six months. Um, and then, yeah, then it wasn't, then I think it was when I went back to school, um, where I was boarding down there three nights a week, um, back at Dulwich. And I was, um, I think that was a time where I was really, okay, this is actually, I'm away from home. It's just me, the carers. And I kind of have to take more control, even though obviously a lot of stuff was done for me down there by the school. I was kind of like, okay, this is now actually living. This is now my new existence, I think. And for me, that was kind of the, the final part of it for me. And then I could really start to move on and kind of, I guess, enjoy my life a bit more. Rather than always focusing yes. on my physio and my training, it's about actually then sitting back and going, oh, I can enjoy time with my friends again properly. Um, I can go out more, I can see people more, I can do these things. These are, these are not, these aren't obstacles that my accent should be is those were more just kind of mental hurdles for me that I needed to, to get over. So it is a process and yeah. people think that just because kind of I've done it, it was like a flip of the switch moment that suddenly things change. I was able to just kind of power and drive through. But you kind of in everything I do and everything I say to people, I always talk about patience. Nothing 
nothing in my life happens quickly. Nothing just appears and it's done. And suddenly it's, I mean, my physio, it took me two months, two and a half months just to be able to breathe again. It took me six months to get out of the hospital. Initially, they thought it was going to be 18 months. It takes me kind of three, over three hours to get ready every morning. Everything I do takes some time. And you have to kind of force patience upon yourself. When you have patience, suddenly everything's a lot calmer, everything's a lot kind of simpler. Yes. You're not getting too like worried and pissed up about things, not kind of like, ah, oh, like, why isn't this happening now? It's just, no. you can just be more relaxed in yourself, I think. And for me, that's been, yes. that's been a huge lesson for me. I was fascinated about that, the point about, you know, it, and, and I have heard this from other people, is that somehow or other, when you get right to the bottom, literally where you can't really fall any further, something changes inside you to something. It's almost like the brain, the body reboots itself in a, in a kind of way and, and starts to allow you to move forward. And clearly you've done, I mean, you've done that in the most extraordinarily difficult situations. And I guess it also shows a huge inner strength. And I wonder whether that, goes back to some of that character you, you talked about when you were a, a, you know, a young lad, that sort of resilience and that strength. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think you've actually, that's something you've acquired? Oh, it's definitely something that I've acquired. Like I said at the start, I kind of might define myself by my physicality before, and I think probably looking back, it's kind of, I guess, a bit of a mask for kind of mentally that I wasn't, kind of um, strong enough to kind of back myself in doing things. I always, always doubt myself, always, I always went in situations never thinking about the positive outcomes. It was always about, oh, what might happen if this goes wrong or that goes wrong in a rugby match. And then I'd always play things up in my head to be way worse than what they actually were. Um, and I think that's why I spent a lot of time in the gym because that's one place where I knew that I could be strong. I knew I was, could be stronger than other people. Um, and in a way that did, yeah, that gave me confidence. But yeah, I'm a very different person now to how I was before. Um, definitely. It's, it's been a weird kind of turnaround and yeah. it's, it's, but you know, it's been something that's great. It's given me this new, I guess, resilience, this new way of looking at things that I never had before. That has made my life so much better and happier than it ever was before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you show a, a, a maturity which is which, which is actually remarkable for for your age, really. Because I mean, I I could imagine listening to someone talking out the way at, in that way who's much further down the line in their in their life. But you you've you found that that earlier, and and I suppose the other thing to say about that is that it does prove that you can change things, doesn't it? Because you know, you're saying they're new skills and, and they're new skills you've acquired. So it gives a lot of people hope, I think, the fact that, you know, you aren't stuck with what you've got necessarily. You've got the power to change things. Yeah, and it's, um, it's after, I mean, the closing bit to my book I talk about, and I've closed the book the same way I close all my talks, is talking about um, saying to people, I always say, like, I truly believe, I always say, God, I suspect some of you may be thinking I've been brave during this situation and all these things, but that's that's who we are. That's 
and the human spirit. That's the way we're made. We all have this in us. It just takes us all different situations, different moments to kind of find it. And some of us don't, and that's that's fine. It's not it's not something that kind of should, should worry about. But I really believe that is in all of us. And I think, and I like to think that I've proved it. Kind of the two different people I was before and after the accident is is vast. I think, and um, it is, and it yeah, it just took me kind of that something quite dramatic. Um, and it takes some people a lot smaller situations to find it, but. I think once we find it, once we're able to get a hold of that that power, it is so it's it's a complete game changer. It's been amazing for me. And I guess that that you know, if you went back to when you were a young teenager, you you, you probably would never imagine yourself being a painter, uh, a speaker, and writing a book. I bet that's the furthest from your mind. Those things. Well. The three things that I probably would have put bottom of my list would have been all <laughs> the public speaker. Uh, yes. Public speaker being very bottom of that list. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, when I was young, I loved painting, I loved drawing, I loved making stuff. As I grew up, I felt completely out of love with it. Would have dropped off to school, would have never touched the stuff again, would have never gone near it. But, you know, the accident's led me back to it. It's given me, the accident's given me that joy I had as a kid. And that kind of excitement I get when I create something and I like look at it and I, I really like it. It's rare, but I get that feeling straight away. It normally happens after a little while after I finish painting together. I can look back and say I like it. Um, but you know, those are things accents give me. And when it comes to public speaking, I mean, like it's, it's mad. It, <laughs> um, I couldn't even get up in front of class. 12 people in school and do it. Um, I mean, I, again, in the book, I talk about a moment where in GCSE English, part of the course is to kind of to give a presentation. And luckily for me, that previous weekend, I had a, as in a rugby match, I had my head kicked in a little bit. And I managed to put off doing the English speech, English, um, GCSE English speech for all week until I realized actually on Friday that I'd have to do it. I couldn't hide and hide like under the table in class anymore. But then I just, I was like, okay, I need to get out of this lesson. So I kind of feigned this delayed concussion that I had. <laughs> so I went and laid down in the sanatorium for, I don't know, about an hour. I had to make it look convincing because so I had to skip the next lesson as well. <laughs> <laughs> I look right now and I'm just like, wow, that's like, I don't, I can't even recognize that person anymore. I mean, now, public speaking is, it still gets me, it still, makes me nervous, it still puts me on edge. The longer gaps I have between talks I'm giving kind of is the kind of expands that nervousness I get before. But I enjoy it and I always very nervous, always very worried, but I'm able to just control it more. I'm able to say, kind of look back at previous ones I've done and go, okay, well maybe that went wrong, but this worked out well for you. You really enjoy it when you do it, you get an excitement, a buzz of it when you're done. And I really do. I really kind of, because it's so far out of my comfort zone, I do get an enjoyment at the end of it. And it is fun. And I like doing the Q&As at the end of people. It's kind of forces me to be on my toes and think think differently. And I'm kind of this balance in my life where 
I can be at my easel. I mean, it's just next to me over there and chill and I'm going to be in my own headspace and not worry about anything else. I can be in the room by myself and be that person that I was, I was before the accident. And that's fine. Cause that's, I mean, people always talk about kind of, it's not great having comfort zones. You need to push yourself. And I disagree. The comfort zone for me is great. I love it. I love this sitting there. And it, but it's good. It is good every now and then to kind of step outside and challenge yourself a bit and yes. do things. And that's what public speaking for me is. That's that driving me out. That's forcing me to do, do something different. Do that thing that used to utterly terrify me. Because I know that at the end of the day, it's not, it's not going to physically harm me. It's not going to cause me any distresses. If it goes wrong, it goes wrong. I can just, go, okay, well, next time, next time I do it, I know to change this or change that. I'm not going to look at it as a negative thing. And then the day after, I can then sit in my easel and be in my own, my own chilled-out space again. Yeah. I mean, lots of performers talk about the, the sort of almost like the, the adrenaline rush that you get from performing, you know, whether that's a musician or speaker or a comedian, whatever it might be. And, and do you get a do you get that sense of adrenaline when you get the feedback and, and, and appreciation and things like that. Yeah, especially the appreciation for it. I can fully um, understand why actors and performers love being on stage, love being in front of audiences and feeling that energy from them. I yeah, fully get that. For me, I wouldn't do it every day of the week, <laughs> but I do, I do enjoy those moments. And it's kind of that encouragement, I guess, that I guess I'm doing something right. <laughs> Well, you're doing a hell of a lot right, actually. I mean, I'm interested in in this point you made. I think uh, in both the books, really, about control. And do you do you now feel more comfortable when you feel you are controlling things, or or actually, do you now actually are you happy to sort of almost to surrender to events sometime and let the, the sort of world determine what's what's next for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess as I've kind of gone through this process, I've taken, I guess, more control of my life and the things in my life. And I have set routines for a lot of stuff and I do repeat kind of things. But for me, that's, if I'm able to control those and know that they are, um, I guess that they're going to be right because I'm in control of them, then the things that I don't have control of during my day or in my life, when they do come around, I'm able to deal with them head on rather than worrying. It kind of just gives me less things to worry about because in my head, yes, the routine is my, my kind of comfort at the start of the day. because so I know that's going to be it's the same every morning. So I know that kind of, that's a good way to wake up for me. For me, that, that's what works, having the routines. And I'm, I'm, but I am able to, kind of, like I said, um, kind of release myself to when things aren't as controlled, able to kind of surrender myself to a bit more and go, okay, I just let it happen. And then once it's finished, then I can kind of understand it. And so, I mean, I talk about, um, I gave this talk at a prison, the women's prison, and just everything that day was going wrong. <laughs> uh, my routine was fine, but everything else was going wrong. Um, we'd previously crashed my car, so we had to hire a new one. 
the one we're picking up that day, the rental that had been written off the day before. So we had to go and get this other one that we could just about get me into, just about get the wheelchair into. Just this whole chaos at the start of the day. The journey, it was just really uncomfortable journey. The car wasn't right at all. Got to the prison just in time. Went into, meant to go in the lift, go up to the room. And then the lift started to stop working. When I was kind of a, a few feet up and then by that point, I was just like, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever happens, goes wrong next, it's going to go wrong. But there's so many points where I look at that and go, pre accident would have just, when the car thing went wrong, probably would have just gone, called it off, don't want to do it, kind of throw me off. But I kind of let that happen. And then the next thing happened, and the next thing happened. And in the end, it's the most enjoyable talk I've ever given. Kind of one of the best environments I've ever sat in. And, it was awesome to be there. And, um, and yeah, it was just like one of those things where I can look back and go, if I called it off, I would have, I would have had this kind of sharing these stories about when I went to prison and these characters I met and all these lovely, lovely women I met. It was, it was just such a fun day <laughs> that I wouldn't have had had I decided when that car went wrong to just call it off. That's fascinating. I mean, that really is a, a, the, the sort of almost surrendering to, mm. to you know, what, what happens that you can't control and, and how you actually get, you know, it presents things that are surprising and, yeah. and joyful. Yeah, when yeah, it's really interesting. Go wrong, it's, you kind of just almost have to let them go wrong in a way, for me anyways. And then at the end of it, once it's kind of done, finished, then you can kind of take a step back and go, okay, well, can I deal with it? Is there something I need to deal with now to correct it? Or if there's nothing I can do about it, then there's nothing I can do about it. There's no point of me kind of always letting it dwell on my mind or worry about it or anything like that because we just kind of create more kind of negativity rather than just saying to self, well, it's happened, move on. And sometimes there are situations where I do have to kind of say stuff in my, to myself like that. And you, even kind of saying those things out loud to myself work. <laughs> You're kind of reinforcing that that in your own head. And it does take sometimes that repetition, those things, that constant kind of getting it in your head to, for it to work. Yeah. And for me, that's what, that's what I mean. You write, you certainly wrote in, the, in your first book, um, the little big things about that, the sort of art of striving. And I, I sense you've always pushed yourself. How do you deal with that now? Has that changed in any way? Are you kinder to yourself or are you, do you still push yourself along? Um, there are times where I've definitely pushed myself too much, um, kind of a detriment to my own health, but especially at the start kind of when I was doing physio and things. Because I was doing bits that kind of went in the hospital. I was doing things that hospital I hadn't seen before someone in my level of injury, so I was just kind of in my head, like, okay, I can do more, I can do more, I can do more. And then when I came home, I was doing loads of physio, and it was just too much. And it was, yeah, it would just kind of be like, probably like, I do three days solid, and the next two days, I'd just be tired and achy, and just not feeling great at all, mentally or physically. And um, this kind of things you just learn where I was like, okay, I need to rest a bit. And then when I started to get around to painting again, I kind of completely forgot about 
what I told myself previously. <laughs> and then I was just in way too much painting. And because I kind of <laughs> didn't, because um, it took me a while to kind of drop my stubbornness a bit when it came to painting. So I was like, once I start one, I want to finish it. So I do as, as long as I could in a day, probably too tired, go back the next day, continue it, and the next day until it's done. And again, it's actually the painting on the front cover of the, of the Paranew painting of Everest, where that kind of that one image taught me a lot, and is why it's kind of seems so perfect for the front cover of the book. I painted it four years ago, probably exactly a year into my painting when I first started uh, mouth painting, and I did I think it was four or five days in a row, four or five hours a day, and it just blitzed me. And for the next three days, I barely got out of bed. I was so tired. And I just sat back and I thought, you know what? Like this, there's no, like me feeling like this isn't, it's not good for me. It's not good for anyone else. It's kind of stopping me from actually enjoying, enjoying my day, kind of day-to-day living. So from then, I'd really reduce everything. I decided to limit myself to no more than three hours in one day and no more than three days in a row of painting. And that's been a massive change. <laughs> Because it means that actually I can organize my week differently. I can, if I've got a talk coming up, I can kind of give and take a bit more. I can do less painting and then rest for the talk. I kind of fit my physio in it and do exercise more at different times. Kind of, it's given me more structure. You know, even though my weeks are kind of what I do during the day does change when it can change um, quite often, but. It's kind of given me structure in a way that I can be prepared for everything now. I can, if I know what's coming up, I can say, okay, well, day before I talk, I'm not going to paint. I'm going to relax because I know the talk's going to be tiring and all these things. And it's, I don't, it's just given me so many more different ways of thinking and doing things. Yes, it's really interesting. So I think one of the things you talk about, certainly in, in the new book, Power in You, is this sort of you talk about this transformational power of acceptance and living in the moment i mean that that whole idea is getting more and more traction really isn't it you know you mention also in the book about eckhart tolle and obviously he wrote the book the power of now and this whole idea of living in the moment accepting what is and what you can't control you know is it, people i think are becoming more and more aware of that did did you just discover that as part of your own process i mean how much have you drawn on those sort of writings and, and that sort of the general area of discussion around that? Most of it, to be honest, is just me. Um, I kind of always wanted to do everything myself pre-accident. I think that was one of the things that's kind of driven me on to kind of change, I guess, was that I wanted to prove that in a way that we can find it within ourselves without outside help all the time. It does help. I mean, there were times when I remember, I guess when I first started on social media, probably around 2013, I think it was, and people would tweet these quotes and things and I'd read them and think, oh, okay, that's, like, that's kind of everything I want to say, but I don't know how to say it. And these, so then I'd just look around and find all these people like Eckhart, um, Eckhart Tolle, and you kind of realize actually, yeah, this is, it's a way of thinking that is, is accessible. It's not, big dream is accessible to us and acceptance of, of course now in this um, everything that's going on in the world right now with down and things and 
I always say to people, it's about, because for me, it wasn't, when I was in hospital, my, at the start, I probably had thoughts about getting out and going home. But because I had no idea when that moment was going to be, like now, we have no idea when this whole thing is going to work. We don't know. We, we have no idea it could happen kind of this year, it could happen next year. We don't know. So for me, I decided to then bring my goals back to not thinking about the end because it can be an overwhelming thing. And it can be that kind of forever, that kind of chasing the carrot type thing where you're just constantly going for it. And it's not there. And the more, the longer you spend going for it, the longer, the more disappointed you get because you're not reaching it. So I decided to bring it right back to going, okay, well, no point in me looking at the end goal. Don't know when that, when that is. I'm going to bring it. Okay. I want to get to the rehab board. Okay. I don't know when that's going to happen. So I, I want to, I want to be able to, um, get off the ventilator. So, okay. So I thought, okay, that's realistic. I can break that down. And then I broke that down to, again, I didn't know how long it would take, but I thought, okay, that's a physical goal for me. So then with my physio at the time, we decided to, um, take it each day at a time. So the first day I was allowed off the ventilator was, I was allowed five minutes in the day. And that was it. I was, it was five minutes and 24 hours and nothing is blink of an eye. But for me, that was the focus. That was what I was going for. That was my target for the day. And then the rest of the day, you know, I could recover, I could relax. I could, but always knowing in my head that I just had that five minutes, which was great. And the next day was 10 minutes, the next day was 15 minutes. And again, such just fractions, but for me, and then after that, we could kind of go 25 minutes, 35, 40, until I got to an hour. And then when I could get an hour off the ventilator, I was then able to spend more time in the wheelchair, down in the, kind of in the main hospital, kind of cafe, meeting the area, could kind of see my, all the bits of hospital that people had been talking about, all my friends and family had come to see me. I could see friends when we were just in the hospital bed, we could sit outside or something. And all these things then led to another. And eventually, eight weeks in, I was able to get rid of the ventilator. Then I could start thinking about the rehab ward. And then when I was in there, it was more just about, all right, I just want to get as fit and healthy as possible. And then early on, they sat me down and said, here's a discharge date. Then suddenly I was like, okay, well, that's um, a few months from now. I now have a few months. I now have a target. I now have the same goal. And those three months, I just pushed myself physically harder than I ever had done in my life with only a handful of working muscles. But that was what I wanted to do and that was what I was doing. And I still never really let kind of the physio bits get in the way of actually still enjoying time with friends and family when they came to visit. I didn't want that to be a distraction. I wanted to have that kind of normality with them. Um, and yeah, that's so kind of that moment it was for me. It was about literally each day in being in that moment. And even if it was just five minutes, a new, a different five minutes each day, that was my, that was my moment. And they literally built from that. I suppose it also illustrates the power of just tiny steps and setting goals that, you know, are achievable, that you can take one step before the other. And, X period of time further on, you've suddenly realised how far you've been able to come. Yeah, just by focusing on those small. Yeah, things. because it's again, it's everyone. Everyone wants kind of the big change, the big goal, the new this or new that. But if you, it's 
thinking about that just one thing isn't going to get you where it is. You'll get there quicker taking much smaller steps, definitely. And it's recognizing that progress in yourself in what you're doing and kind of telling yourself, oh, like, if, it's like being self-congratulatory is fine. Like saying to yourself, like, like, that was great. Well, well done. Like, you can be happy about it. It's being happy about your own achievements isn't, it's not a bad thing. So you say, I do the five minutes, I'll be like, oh, awesome, great. So I'm really happy with that. <laughs> Those five minutes have made me extremely happy. And it kind of gave me that buzz to want to. But now I'm going to do six. <laughs> yeah, then I do six and seven. I'm like, oh, it's amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, because then when you have, when you recognize progress, when you realize what you're doing is right and it's making you happy, when you have times when it doesn't work, and I had times, many times along the way when I was trying to get compensated, when things didn't work and then I was not maybe not back for a couple of days. But in my head, I was still able to look back at those previous moments where I had made progress and be like, okay, that was good. Those moments made me happy. I can think about those moments and then they made me happy now and I can forget about this not working because I've made previous progress and if this is it, that's fine. If this is kind of my limit, that's fine. I've still beaten those other days. I can now focus on something else. Has this, has it changed in any way relationship with family? Has it made any difference to that? Made you realise different things about family? I guess it's made me appreciate family and friends a lot more. I think as a family, we were always close as a family anyways, but I think this has made us even closer because we've kind of lived and breathed it together. It's the day after I landed in England, my brothers came to see me straight away. And... Yeah, I mean, it was a highly emotionally charged moment. But, you know, at the same time, we're back together as well again. A moment that could have easily not happened when I was in that water. Um, so suddenly we were starting this journey as, as a team. And, um, because we had been through all the emotions together, we hadn't held anything back. We'd just released it all. We were able to get back to normality quite early on. You know, ribbing each other, mocking each other, and all these things that you know brothers do, families do. It was nice to be able to just get straight back into that. Obviously, we weren't denying the situation. We all knew something had changed quite dramatically, but we were going to kind of get through that. And I think they were feeding off me wanting to do more. And then when I saw them kind of being happy about stuff, then that made me better, which then made them better. It's this constant back and forth, and it's the same with my friends. That kind of crying and releasing emotions where my friends came to see me. It was the same thing. It kind of straight away broke down that barrier, the situation, the kind of the massive elephant in the room, I guess. And then we were just able to just move on. And it's those moments that I look back and think as a family now, it's great. And then I'm able to kind of share that with friends now where I can kind of reciprocate that kindness they've shown me. I've just come to realize that relationships as well in these situations, it's amazing how, I mean, we see it now through lockdown, how people come together in these times, through times that are really tough. And it's amazing how when majority of people are able to recognize that and kind of step up and kind of do something for others, no matter how, how big or small it might seem, any gesture is huge. And for me, I've got 
letters and cards from people in the hospital that people I didn't even know, friends of mum and dad, their children or something, with drawings from kids from Dulwich they sent me, or I had a load of letters from, from kids who were like eight, nine years old. It was amazing and that it's just those those moments where you read it and it's just like this is this is great. This is what kind of people and humans do best. And I think we've kind of been lacking in a lot of people in recent times. But I think hopefully that's one thing that will come out of this COVID situation is that people start recognising that little things for other people and kind of having empathy towards towards others that kind of live their lives in lockdown, I guess. Yeah, I think there's, um, it's interesting, I think there's a whole swell of people recognising how important just little acts of kindness are and, and how important that is to all of us as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. The givers and the takers, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's generally like, no matter how small or big it might seem, it's, it does make, it made a huge difference for me, just knowing that kind of people were taking time to write to me or even just message one of my brothers to say something to me or you know, even if it wasn't to me directly. But knowing that there are people out there kind of supporting me and doing that was, it was huge. It was, it was a massive part of, of helping me recover and get through kind of what was a pretty traumatic time at the start. Very practical, Tracy. What makes you happy and what winds you up? Uh, um, what winds me up? We could be here forever. Um, <laughs> there's, um, things that make me happy are, um, I don't know, for me, it's, to me, they're always quite small things. I kind of have lots of things that make me happy. I have to, I mean, even me eating junk food makes me happy because I'd be so strict in my diet. Otherwise, I'll be huge. I'll be absolutely massive. Obviously, I'm not burning off the calories as everyone else does. So I'd be super strict to what I eat. In those little times when I can have something naughty, I can't have a chocolate bar, can't have a pack of crisps, or even just a bagel for breakfast on one day a week. That moment makes me happy. And they are tiny. And I, I much prefer to kind of always list the smaller things that make me happy because those kind of little things that are more likely to happen each day, the little things. So those are joys of happiness. Obviously, painting makes me happy. Those kind of, I have lots of moments that I decide that those are my happy moments because kind of the more I have, the happier I am, I guess. The things that wind me up, um, um, I don't know, there's, I guess when people just, when people assume they know other people's situations and things they've gone through and so when people assume they, they know what other people have been through and they kind of start telling them what to do rather than understanding their own understanding why someone thinks a certain way not giving them time to express their own views whether you disagree with them or not doesn't you kind of you have to you should listen because that's the only way we can understand each other if you don't agree fine like don't talk to the person about that subject <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, with some of my friends, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but, you know, that's life. I'm never going to agree with everyone about everything. And because they're my friends, they want to move on, they want to get, kind of just park it and talk about something else. Um, but also just in general, day-to-day life, a lot of things are me about people's kind of general attitudes towards uh, disability and disabled people. 
this kind of general air that people have that say people can't do anything, they're kind of just takers from government. But having those things in place lets me go out and give talks and paint and do and write books and do these things and contribute. And that's what we say what people want to do. They want to just feel like they're adding to society. I guess that's kind of one of the things I've always wanted to show is that we can we can do things. We do things differently, but we can still do it. And again, it's one of the things coming out of lockdown, which hopefully many, many employers around the country and around the world realise that it is, in many situations, very easy to work from home. We don't need to be in the office every single day doing the things that for many disabled people, they can't always get into the office. So hopefully people realise, oh, actually, that hurdle, that barrier that has always been in place that shouldn't have been in place can finally be removed. I think that's a incredibly important point you're making there because um, my, our youngest daughter has a disability as well and, and it makes you so much more aware of the restrictions and I think particularly around the transition from education into work and the difficulty of finding, you know, meaningful work for people like that and and I agree with you it's it's only in these moments that we can bring that to to you know the world's attention and say that there's equality has got to be across all mm. all, all spectrums yeah definitely and it's like you said it's only kind of once you're in in that situation you know someone you relate to someone whatever who's kind of has those it's been through those moments that you don't be, I mean before accident, I had no idea about all kind of the other things that went along with being disabled. And obviously, along the way, I've had to, I've still kind of educated myself on a lot of things. Um, so I want to kind of talk more about that. I want to educate more people about it to just show them that things don't need to be this hard for disabled people. There are so many little changes that can make their lives so much easier that require pretty much nothing from businesses and, and other kind of venues and things like that. Um, but we just need to kind of just keep talking about it, I guess, and just keep kind of putting it out there and kind of showing people that change needs to be done. I mean, even for example, I saw on, this morning on Twitter, someone put out about outside the shopping centre in Milton Keynes for social distancing queuing. They decided to block up every single, cut off every single disabled parking spot in the car park and it's like but for me the worst thing is the worst thing about it is not that they've done it is that no one's even thought it's never even registered in any of their heads that oh actually disabled people might be coming here and we might need to keep these spots open like no that's the worst thing it's like it's not even a a thing for them and that that's what that's kind of what bugs me most and you do um, a, a lot of work for the uh, Matt Hampson fo- Foundation, don't you? Yeah, I've actually, I've recently, as I've kind of not been as involved, I always try and, where I can, spread the word and share the amazing things that he's done. He's, I mean, Matt Hampson's someone who's massively inspired me, hugely. He's, because um, for me, when I was first in the hospital and coming home, all my focus was on. I just want to get as fit and healthy as possible. Wanted to do my physio and thought really about life after 
I kind of out in the real world, I guess. Um, and it wasn't until I met him at his house. He had this most amazing house. He was living by himself, obviously. Had his care team there living with him. But he was out and about, from sharing his story, working, had his foundation that he just started. And I was just kind of just like, wow, this is it's amazing. I hadn't, hadn't thought about all these things. I hadn't, hadn't been told about all these things that I could be doing. So then I was, he asked me to be a representative for his uh, foundation. So then I was going out and obviously sharing well, I went into the hospital a few times to talk to any other kids that were the age I was when I was going um, through kind of the rehab process and things. And he's just someone that went for it. And now his foundation's about 12, 11, 12 years old now. He's given out over a million pounds to help people through equipment, through whatever, through whatever they need. Even if he's helping kind of wheelchair tennis players and he's just buying table tennis bats, just little things like that that make like because of situations people can't afford. He's just helping people. People aren't giving him big requests, they just want little things, little things to help their life. He's out there offering a chance to people and showing them and he's just built his get busy living centre where people can come and be in an environment where you meet people in a similar situation. You're not in a building that feels like it's been designed for for stable people and wheelchair users. It just feels like an amazing building and it's such an amazing environment to be in and it's got this amazing gym it's a gym that just looks like any other gym in the world obviously there's specialist equipment in there but it's not designed to feel clinical it's just designed to feel like you're at a gym you're working out you're just like everyone else and that's what, what he really tries to show you is that yes there might be physical differences but we're all the same but then even when we all have physical differences anyways. We don't all look the same. We don't all live life in the same way. We don't all do the same things each day. So why should being disabled, why should me being in a wheelchair be any different to that? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, you, you talked a bit about painting and you've you've obviously achieved a tremendous amount. I mean, the, the standard of painting is enormously high. What, what does painting do for you? I guess for me, it's kind of that real independence. Yes, I need someone to obviously put me in position and set me up with paint and put my mouth to my mouth so I'm able to paint. But when I am painting, it's just me. It's just me there at the easel. It's, um, it can, and then it also, like I said earlier, it kind of allows me to kind of shut out everything else that's going on. I can just put on some music or an audio book or something and just relax. I'm not thinking too much about stuff. I'm not thinking about, oh, what am I going to do next or what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm just in that moment at my easel. And it has given me that same, that same joy that I had when I was a young boy of when I was always painting something, always making something, creating something. Um, so for me, I, I still kind of try to that's actually the other thing, good thing about spending too long painting the Everest painting is that it showed me that the less kind of the less time I spend painting, the more I enjoy it. I'm not getting frustrated at the end of doing something, limiting my time or not having to worry about how much paint's left. I just load up the paint and there's always stuff left, but I'm not kind of going, Oh, I might have to save that or save that. I'll just paint away and just sit there 
and just enjoy it and not have to worry about yeah. the other things. Yeah. Which is great. I'm very, I'm just, I'm very lucky that I'm able to do that. Uh, very few people are able to have the opportunity to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm lucky that I do. Yeah. I mean, and it's fantastic because you can carry it through your whole life, can't you? I mean, it's always going to be something you'll have and, and you're always going to be able to look at the product of what you've created. Yeah. And I mean, I do, I mean, most times to be fair, I finish it, I take a photo of it. Once it's dry, it's in a cardboard envelope and then just in the study and I don't see them again until I don't <laughs> It's kind of rare that I'm actually, I, I like the whole of an end product of the painting. But I think that's something I, I quite like because it means that I'm kind of, it's never really done. So when I go on to the next one, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this differently going into this. I'm not, I'm not, I try not to kind of let myself settle too much. That's the striver in you, of course. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Even when I was at the gym and stuff, it was always about kind of the process and the technique that went into everything. And I always enjoyed that side of it. I always enjoyed kind of watching teams train and what they do because everyone does things differently. It's kind of, you're, it's a learning experience. It wasn't always about the end products kind of in the, on the pitch and the game, it's about the training. So for me, that's something that I, I really kind of enjoy now, that striving, that process of painting for me, those different ways of doing things. And my painting's constantly changing. How I'm doing things is, I've been doing it for five and a half years now, but I'm not doing the same thing. There's very few, maybe there's a few at the start paintings that have some kind of have similarities, but I try and do different things each time I want to. I guess um, as we draw towards the close, I, I, I suppose I wanted to ask you the, the question of if you look back at what's happened to you, what has it taught you? Um, it's taught me to be far more grateful in life. I was very lucky growing up. I grew up in an amazing house, amazing place with a great garden. My brothers were playing. We Luckily, we went to really good schools. We had all, all these things. And I was quite like when I was young, I was just quite good at sports. So I did well. I never really kind of appreciated any of those things. I just massively took for granted everything that came my way. And I never really kind of realized it then. Obviously, once everything's kind of taken away, you have to realize, oh, actually, I should have appreciated that more. I should have done more with that opportunity I had we should have I should have done more I kind of didn't realise it um, and gratitude for me now is something that um, is a massive mood enhancer in my life it's um, it was only when writing the first book actually one of my brothers emailed me and said I think um, it looks like grateful is your new favourite word it was only when I had to read the audio book for the first one there I realised, oh yeah, actually, I wrote a lot about that. Because <laughs> I, I just hadn't realised it. It was just obviously a point that just kept coming round again over and over. Um, and that's, that is a huge part of my life. And waking up each day and being grateful for the things that I'm able to do and that I still have does give me a lift each day. I think it's one thing that people should do every day is wake up and feel grateful for something. 
no matter how small it might seem. That it does make you feel better. It does kind of lift your mood slightly. And it just gives you a start to the day that kind of you don't normally have. And I think if you can carry that throughout the day, it'd be great. If you need to kind of remind yourself of something, then find something. So people do the same thing to be grateful for. Kind of remind yourself of that. Gratitude is a big part of of everything I do, definitely. And you have that motto, every day can be a good day, which is mm. shows a real positivity about potential, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not saying like every day is going to be like the best day. It's not saying that in that day something bad won't happen. It's about going into each day believing it can be a good day. Obviously, terrible stuff happens. You know, you lose loved ones, things happen. Those aren't good things, but you can go into each day feeling, kind of telling yourself that every day is every day is a good day. Today will be a good day. And it gives you that boost. It gives you those things. You need to kind of get yourself going sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes you have to remind yourself of those things. And I think what you, you also prove is, well, it's on your it's on your sweatshirt, accept and adapt that whole, you know, a- attitude that yeah. You know, as you say, you're going to be presented with difficult things. The question is, you know, can you move on from it? Can you adapt? Can you not let it destroy you? Yeah, and it's yeah, about it's about not dwelling, not sitting on it, not because kind of the more you do, the more it drags you down and that kind of drag pushes acceptance further and further away. And yeah, there are tough situations that are hard to accept, but until you accept it, you can't move on. You can't adapt to what's happened, you can't. You can't do those things. You can't live. You can't live your life in kind of to the most, to in the best way you can. And I, I keep saying, you kind of always have to remind yourself of these things. And for me, it's just become part and parcel of who I am of my day to day life. Because at the start, it would just be I'd remind myself of these things. And every time I give talks, I'm telling the audience, but then I'm also reminding myself as well. So I'm, I even I, even me now I'm starting to do those things, but you know if that's if I want to kind of enjoy the things I w- I want to enjoy, if I want to kind of push myself and do those things, if I want to you know get out and about, I have to live by kind of what I say, and I still have to every day do those things. So it's not kind of you've done it, that's it for the one time. It is a process. All these things are processes. And again, you just got to have patience. And what would you say to anyone out there who's stuff, suffering from any type of adversity? What would your advice to them be? Um, I think it kind of depends where they are along kind of the process. Um, at the start, I would say let yourself um, be like breathe almost <laughs> let yourself be emotional release everything holding those back is on a part of non-acceptance it weighs you down um, and then for me it's about early on is about lit, like the little goals the little achievable goals even if you know you're going to hit it even if you're going to make it a goal it doesn't matter it's still something you've achieved it's still progress um Again, it's about recognising that progress and carrying that through. And 
progress and patience are big parts of any, I think, any recovery um, that people go through. And I think you just have to, you have to keep telling yourself, you need to do these things. I need to wake up and think about this. Rather than think about that, I'm going to think about this. Or I'm going to just wake up and just go, I was a positive thing today. This, great. That's positive. That's a positive day. Found one positive thing. Like, it's the little things count for a lot. And when you recognize them, I mean, for me, at the end of all this, it's, I could list way more things I can't do because of my accident. There is probably an endless list of things that I can't do because of my physical capabilities. But I, I was kind of, there's no point in me ever looking at my life in that way. I'd rather look at it, look at it and go, you know, I've still got my friends and my family. I still get to go out. I still get to do certain things. I get to sit my ease and paint. I get to go out and give talks and share my story. I've been able to write books. My accent's given me so much more than I ever dreamed of in my life. And it's given me a confidence that I never had for my accident. And because of that, you know, I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for those amazing moments that Maxon's given me. As you look forward, are there any any things that you would love to achieve that you haven't yet done? I mean, for me, the next big one is moving out. That's going to be a, a big process. I guess kind of championing, championing disability rights more, kind of getting myself out there kind of in a more public sphere and showing my face at events and doing those things. I do bits online, but there is certainly more that I could do. Um, and I think I'm very lucky I have a platform that it'd be kind of irresponsible for me not to use it in that way. So I think at some point going forward now, that start kind of being more and more part of my life. Well, look, Henry, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. I've so enjoyed talking to you. So I, I really thank you. I would recommend to anybody to read your book. It's absolutely inspirational, the, the power in you. And please go out there and, and buy that because it, it, it really gives tremendous advice to anybody. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much. Henry was everything and more that I had hoped for and expected. A young man with uncommon wisdom and insight, way beyond his years. I can't help thinking that will be an incredibly important asset for Henry as he navigates through his life. Somehow, through everything Henry has gone through, he manages to create that feel-good factor about life. He teaches us that whatever life throws at us, we have the resources within us to live a positive life. As he says in his latest book, The Power in You, from the hardest moments, I have discovered the most precious of all facts. The power to deal with adversity is in you. Sometimes you may need a little help to tap into that internal strength, but I truly believe that it is there in all of us. I encourage you to have a look at Henry's fantastic art and to read his books. The links for both of these 
are in the show notes. Until next time, go safely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.